Show me your Bibles to 1 John. I'm going to read from 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5. And I'm going to read through 2.11 to give us the context of the passage we're going to look at this evening. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the expiation for our sins, and not only ours only, but for all, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly love for God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness still. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and in it there is no cause for stumbling. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. There's a congregation uh, in another state that met a very difficult and painful end. There were some Christians in the congregation who were convinced that they were more spiritual than the rest of the congregation. They believed that their faith was stronger. They believed that their way of serving the Lord was better. They were certain that their insight into the Christian faith was deeper and richer. And they also believed that all of that entitled them to judge their brothers and sisters and run the church. After all, they alone knew what was best. In time, though, the rest of the congregation challenged the group and refused to follow their lead anymore. It wasn't long till the group that thought it was more spiritual simply left. We might think that their departure would make things better, but sadly it didn't. The situation only became worse. The members who were left behind were discouraged, and they were disheartened. There were fewer members, 
there was less money to work with. And they couldn't get the mind out of their minds the idea that they left because there's something wrong with us. Because we're just not what we ought to be. And it hurt them to have other Christians tell them that they weren't faithful or they weren't spiritual. Efforts were made to encourage and to revive the congregation. But in the end, the discouragement won out and the congregation disbanded. Similar circumstances faced the church in Ephesus near the end of the first century. Some in the church claimed that they were more spiritual, claimed that they possessed a superior faith, and even went so far as to claim that they had received special revelation from God. They disrupted the Ephesian congregation before eventually going their own way. The Apostle John, now well up in years, was called on by God to instruct and encourage and build up the faithful brethren who remained. And we find his inspired encouragement in what we know as 1 John. I suppose that in the course of our Christian life, we do meet Christians who are impressed with their own spiritual lives. And we may be discouraged when we compare ourselves to them. It's also not hard to find other Christians whose gifts or abilities seem much greater than ours and to think less of ourselves. And even without comparing ourselves to others, we also find reason within to doubt ourselves, to doubt our walk with the Lord. So this evening, I want to look at just a small section of John's encouragement, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, because it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of what we have in Christ and why humble assurance and confidence is possible in our hearts. John begins by giving three assurances. Listen to verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's hard to know exactly who John is referring to when he speaks of children, fathers, and young men. I'm inclined to believe that children here are all the members of the congregation. John addresses the congregation as his children or his dear children or his little children all the way through First John and even in 2nd and 3rd John. Fathers may be older Christians who have lived the Christian life for many years. And while we may not call, be used to calling women fathers, it may be men and women who are older in the faith. Young men may be younger Christians who are just needing or just reaching spiritual maturity. And again, he may be speaking to men and women who have reached that stage in their spiritual life. Or, John may simply be speaking of these three groups as a way of stressing the truth that he wants to convey 
to reassure all of them, to give all of them confidence. But here John is telling his readers and he's telling us that Christians who live in the light, who walk in the light, need never think, feel, or act as if they're inferior. If there is a sin in a Christian's life, God has provided a way to deal with it. And we saw that in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, and verse 2. But here John says that God gives faithful Christians three blessings on which to build their Christian life. Three blessings that tell them who they are and about their relationship with God. They give us an unshakable foundation that no one can tear down, that no one can alter. First, John wants his dear children to know that their sins are forgiven. Look at verse 12. Jesus died on the cross for us. His death paid the penalty of our sins. And when we are joined to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and baptism, we receive the remission of sins. Our old life of sin dies and is buried, and we rise to walk in newness of life. For the faithful child of God, for the faithful Christian, Jesus' blood continuously cleanses our sins away. So every Christian, from the one who is still wet from the waters of baptism to the one who has walked with the Lord for decades, can live their Christian life and know that their sins are forgiven. As we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And not one of us need ever doubt that Jesus paid the debt for our sins in full. But John also says that he's writing to his dear children because they know the Father. Notice the end of verse 13. God is no stranger to Christians. When we obey the gospel, when anyone obeys the gospel, God adopts us into his family. He makes us one of his children, and he shares his spirit with us. When we obey Jesus' commands, he and the Father come to live with us to abide with us, to abide in us. John chapter 14 and verse 23. We've been given the privilege of addressing God in personal, intimate family terms. He is Abba Father to us. We're not outsiders. We're not strangers. We're not shirt-tail relations. We are not orphans. Even though sometimes in our Christian life we, we seem to think that we are. But we are none of those things. Every Christian every is a child of God and we can know that our sins are forgiven and we can know that God is our Father. But then John addresses fathers. And he addresses them because they know him who is from the beginning. Look at the beginning of verse 13 and then look at verse 14. Now, the first thing we can know as newborn Christians is that God is our Father. But as we live the Christian life, we grow in our knowledge and experience of God. Our age lets us look back over the length of our lives and see that it was God who led us in green to, to green pastures and caused us to lie down beside still waters. I've said before, I don't believe that David, in writing the 23rd Psalm, is the sweet singer of Israel, the boy shepherd that we read about at the beginning, but the old David, who is nearing the end of his life, and, and he's reflecting on what he's experienced. Well, I think John is making the same point. We who are older in the faith have experienced God's presence as we have walked the valley of the shadow of death. We know the delight of sitting at God's table, prepared in the presence of our enemies, 
And in our hearts there beats a great desire to live in his house forever. The promise of the new covenant, according to the prophet Jeremiah, includes the promise that those who are under the new covenant, who are joined to the new covenant, will all know God. We won't need anybody to teach us about him because we will know him. The faithful Christian walks in the light with God and has fellowship with God. And no one can deny that. No one can tell us that that is not true. God tells us in his word that it is true. But then John writes to young men, and he has several reasons here. He says, because you've overcome the evil one, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Notice the middle of verse 13 and then verse 14. Every single time a person is baptized into Christ, Satan is defeated. The power of sin and death is broken, and we are no longer enslaved to sin. We have Jesus' blood to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have Jesus at our side to support us, and through him we have strength. And with the word of God living in us, we overcome the evil one. We are now as Christians in a position that we can resist him. We can say no to him. We can refuse his temptations. And James and Peter both assure us that when we do that, he will flee from us. Satan is defeated every time we sit down and we read our Bibles. He is defeated every time we kneel our hearts and our knees in prayer. And every time we obey God. And Satan need never defeat us again because in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. So we have forgiveness of sins and we know the Father. We have a growing, deepening relationship with God. We have victory over Satan. This is who we are. And this is where we stand in Christ Jesus. This is where the Ephesians stood in Jesus. And this is theirs and ours inheritance in Christ Jesus. So we humbly acknowledge that these are gifts of God's grace. But at the same time, we understand that they are also the answer to our doubts, answer to our questions about our walk with God, answer to those who would judge us and condemn us. We know who our Father is. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we have overcome. Yeah, there are going to be struggles, and there are going to be testing as we live the Christian life. That's just part of the growth process. But Satan is defeated, and while Satan is defeated, he still tries to tempt us. Crisis and tragedies and hardships come. But for all of that and in the face of that, we continue to live in this, in this certainty that our sins are forgiven, that we know who our Father is, and that we have overcome the evil one, that we are strong, and that we have the Word of God in us. And so we can have confidence. A confidence that nobody can take from us. That doesn't come from what we do. That comes from who we are. That comes from our relationship with God. And there isn't anything outside of us that can take that away from us. And so there's reason for confidence. For humble confidence. For humble security. And in Christ Jesus. But John's not quite done. Even with all of these blessings, John says... There's still reason to be on guard. There are still reasons for us 
to, to be aware of what is going on around us spiritually. And so he ends this section of this, of his letter in verses 15 through 17 with a warning. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What do we think of when we think about the world we live in? When we think about the beauty of spring flowers, or the beauty of autumn as it's beginning to unfold around us. We think about the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and the Rocky Mountains, the wonders that lie hidden in the depths of the oceans, the starry heavens above. And absolutely none of that is what John is talking about in these verses when he talks about the world. By world, John is referring to human society. Perhaps we could go farther and say human society that is in the grip of the evil one. He certainly means human society that has turned its back on God, that rejects God, that will not acknowledge God. God loves the world so much that he sent his one and only son. But the world we live in does not love God. There is a hostility and there is conflict between God and the world. And as Christians living in this world, we're in the middle of the conflict. I wish it wasn't so. I, I wish we were far, far from it. But the truth is that we are in a war zone and the battle rages all around us. So John tells us, don't love the world. Don't, don't be in love with the world that surrounds you or the things in the world. People who walk in the light, whose sins are forgiven, whose father is God, whose fellowship is with God, who have dis- defeated Satan, John says, must not embrace the values of the world. We must not allow ourselves to be seduced by what the world says is happiness or success or security. Because the more our values are those of the world, the more we want the happiness that's pursued by the world, the more we want to be like our neighbors, the more we give our hearts to the pursuit and achievement of the world's dreams, the less heart we have with which to love God. The more the world fills our heart, the more God is forced out. Love the world, John warns, and the love of the Father is not in us. So he says, be on guard, be watchful, be aware, understand the big picture. The world comes at us in the places that we are most vulnerable. I don't imagine there's one person sitting here that if Satan walked up and says, I want you to go over and kill that person next to you, would have any trouble at all saying, no, I wouldn't do that. But you know what? Satan's not going to walk up to us and say that to us. He's going to find some lesser way, something that intrigues us or something that we might see as desirable. That's where it comes to get us. It comes to us through our desires. And part of what John is is talking about is that it says, well, if you have this, you'll just be happy. If you just have this, you will be happy. If you just wear the right clothes, use the right technology, go to the right places, listen to the right music, see the right movie, then you can really be happy. 
if you live in the right neighborhood, on the right street, in this house, why people with this lifestyle have it made. And Satan dangles that out in front of us. That is how he tempts us. John says the world gets at us through the things that we pray, the things that our eyes show us and that our hearts yearn for. It comes at us through the pride of getting more and having more. However, the issue really isn't the things in themselves, but in our attitude that says we need that. We have to have that. I'll just die if I don't get it. John sees two problems with that. One is, he tells us, none of that comes from the Father. Our Father in Heaven doesn't stir that in our hearts. He doesn't plant that in our hearts. He doesn't give us a lust for more and more things. That is from the world. That is the world working on our hearts, which all by itself should tell us that it's not good for us, which all by itself should tell us that it's dangerous that all by itself should tell us that if we allow it to influence and shape our lives, it will kill us. And we know that that's true. But yet we still say, you know, I'm just going to die if I don't have whatever it is, whatever it might be, new car, faster computer. My kids are not going to do without this. Again, worldliness, as John is defining it here, is found in the phrase, I'll just die if I don't get it. Which brings us to John's second point, that if we take what the world offers us, if we buy into what the world says is really life and really security, if we succumb to the seduction, if it takes us over, we will die. We will die. If we get all our wants, we will die because all that the world offers is going up in smoke. It's going to be destroyed, John says. Oh, it may look beautiful now. It may look permanent. It look, may look secure. But John says it's all going to pass away. So the next time something comes along, whatever it is, and we find ourselves saying to ourselves, oh, I've just got to have it, sniff it and see if it doesn't smell like smoke. And look for ashes and burnt edges and smoldering embers. Because John says it is all going to perish. Even the desire for it will perish. Will pass away because the world itself will pass away. John is promising us that the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the Christian whose desire and need is to do God's will, whether you're a a child or an older person in Christ or a younger person in Christ, if our desire is to do God's will and if we spend our energy doing what pleases Him, John says, we're going to live forever. How do you get eternal life? You live for God. You live for doing His will. See, God doesn't want us to walk with Him just for a little while in this life. Our being free of sin is not simply about this life. Our knowing God is not just for this life. Our conquest of Satan is not just for this life. It is about eternity. It is about our eternity with the Father. And what John wants us to take from this is that we can trust God to bless us with that eternity because the one who does the will of God lives forever and ever.
So whether child or young or old, we just have some wonderful blessings. We have a wonderful foundation on which to live a Christian life. We are secure. Our salvation is not in doubt. And we can know the joy of that. But we need to be wise. We need to understand how the world works, how Satan works. And we need to keep on doing God's will because that is the way to eternal life. So I hope that John's word of encouragement will encourage you and will lift up your heart and help you to live for God this week. I'm going to finish now with a song of encouragement. There may be somebody in need of prayer tonight or needing to do God's will. And if so, won't you come while we stand and sing?